I picked the top 10 stories that I could find on the internet. So I get these emails from Google uh, with your top stories for the day. And I picked the top 10 stories of this week. And I'm going to read them out to you. Minimum wage earners can't afford any level of rent in Peterborough report. Victim of fatal Havelock home fire identified. BC announced 155 new COVID-19 cases. Outbreak at Tim Hortons in Merritt. Justin Trudeau hits back at China after threat to Canadians in Hong Kong. Trump, Biden go at it from a distance in U.S. town hall events. I'm only halfway through, by the way. Azerbaijan says at least 10 killed in latest rocket attack blames Armenia. <sighs> this is interesting. Police arrest nine after teacher beheaded in Paris suburb. Europe braces for impact of second wave pandemic restrictions. Japan to release one million tons of Fukushima's contaminated water into sea. And lastly, World War III fears surge as Trump rejects Russia's extended nuclear deal. Take that in for a moment. We all have questions about what is happening in the world today. We're all wondering what's going on. Which of the presidential candidates is going to save us? Which of the political parties is going to secure our future? Will the Supreme Court of the United States now rule for what is right and God-honoring? Some of us might think that the private sector is what's going to save us. Innovation in medicine, renewable fuels, and maybe communication might be the solution to many of the issues we have today. Now, even more with the U.S. elections coming up and the uncertainty of the effects of COVID on our economy, our society, our churches, and even our family, the questions are, what in the world is going on? Who or what has a plan? We've come to this gathering today. We sing these songs, we take communion, and then we leave through those doors. Have these problems been resolved? Have the nuclear issues been cleaned up? Has world peace been attained? Has coronavirus been eradicated? How is coming here doing anything about anything? And what role do we have in all of this? Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1 to 14, to help direct our minds to answer these questions. I'll be working through a series of 12 sermons on the epistle to the Ephesians that will expand on what we see here in the first 14 verses of chapter 1. So Jason's going to continue through Exodus, and my next sermon will be in December, and I'll be sp sprinkling this somewhere in between, and they're going to come together. All right, so for today, we're going to go to Ephesians chapter 1, verse, verses 1 to 14. 
As we look through the first 14 verses of this episode, I have three very simple points for us. So first, we're going to look at God's plan. Then we're going to look at our place. And then we're going to look at our response. What's God's plan? That's going to take the majority of this time. Then what's our place in this plan? And finally, how do we respond to all of this? Right? God's place, God's plan, our place, our response. Ephesians begins with a greeting from Paul to an audience. And he calls them holy and faithful. It says, to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. In the second verse, he has the thesis line of all of Ephesians. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In this one line hangs all of Ephesians. God gives grace and peace through Jesus to all the holy and faithful ones, meaning you and me, his church. Okay? So in this hangs the entire epistle of Ephesians. But I want us, for our first point, to focus in on verse 3. Verse 3 to verse 14 is actually one long sentence. Okay, it's one long sentence, and it's truth that's linked to truth, that's linked to truth, that's linked to truth. I must have come off camera. Um, And it's a long truth train. And the engine of this truth train is the word blessed or blessed. Right? The engine of the truth train is blessed. Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. God is blessed. Much more than that, He blesses us with every spiritual blessing. When we think of the word blessing, we're often thinking of something pleasant. So I I have this new Rolls Royce, hashtag, blessed, right? Or we think uh, it's good to spend time with family during, during the lockdown, I'm blessed. We sometimes think of rescue from danger. We take a picture and we say, look at this car crash, and I've come out of this car crash without a scratch. I'm blessed. Well, all of those, in some way, are God's providence and God's blessing. In one sense of the way, they're God's blessing. But when Paul uses the word blessed, he has a slightly different idea of what blessedness is. He's reaching into the Old Testament, Foundations of the Faith class, to talk about God who providentially saves his people. A blessed God providentially saves his people. Now, before I get into that, researchers say that by the time you're 80, Uh, you've made about 2 million decisions in your life. About 2 million decisions. And those decisions are anything from what time I need to wake up, which side of the bed I'm getting out of, what I'm going to have for breakfast, what I'm going to wear. All of those are decisions that we make on a daily basis. Now, the other day we were going to leave our home. We live in Norwood. We live over a diner. So we park our car in the diner parking lot. Uh, but our exit is on the other side. So we, we plan to come to Peterborough. And so Sanana and the girls were waiting at the door. And so I went, I got the car from the diner parking lot, and I was supposed to go around to the other side of the building and pick them up. I found myself a few minutes later in the driveway of another house. Right? I, I, I 
started the car, I happened to get onto Highway 7, take a right at the only lights in Norwood, right? And then take a right again, and I'm at the house that we're renovating. I'm at the driveway, and I'm looking at it thinking, was I supposed to drop something here? Was I supposed to pick something up? What am I doing here? And I was like, oh, Sanana and the kids are waiting at the house. So I get out, and I go all the way to pick them up. You see, I had absent-mindedly made a decision, and that was kind of the quality of decisions that this 30-something-year-old makes. Who knows what it's going to be when I'm 60, right? <laughs> or 70. So, so, but when we think of decisions, I don't want us to think of God's decisions the same way. God's decisions aren't like Jerry's decisions. They're not arbitrary decisions or absent-minded decisions. God's decisions are very purposeful and complete. And Paul says that he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. And these spiritual blessings are a particular set of decisions in his actions in blessing us. And he has very, very focused motives. Now, when you stick your finger onto a few verses, we're going to go through a few phrases in um, this passage. In verse 5, it says, He's done this for the good pleasure of his will. In verse 6, he's done it to the praise of the glory of his grace. In verse 9, it says, according to his good pleasure that he purposed. In verse 11, according to the purpose of the one who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Verse 12, to the praise of his glory. Verse 14, to the praise of his glory. The Father's plan in blessing his people is pointed towards one person's glory alone. And it's one person's purpose alone. It's his own. It's the Father's own glory and the Father's own purpose. And he does this by means of one person alone. And that person is Christ Jesus. So to summarize, the blessed Father blesses us for his glory and purpose alone, through Christ Jesus alone. Paul continues in the next five verses to tell us what the Father's blessing in Christ is. He mentions specific actions that his blessings consist of. In verse 4, it says, He chose us to be holy. In verse 5, it says, He predestined us to adoption. In verse 6, it says, he bestowed grace on us in Christ. In verse 7, he redeems us and forgave our sins through the blood of Jesus Christ. And verse 8, he caused to abound. Five specific actions. God's actions are not arbitrary or absent-minded. Look at the words. Chose. Predestined caused. These are words that show determined actions from God's side. I'm going to read verse 4 now. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. In Ephesians 1 verse 4, he says that God's people were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Take that in for a second. 
Some of us have been doing a 90-day reading plan, right? And so once the Old Testament survey started, we started reading right through the Bible. You start in Genesis, and then you read about the creation. Then you read about how God formed humans and placed them in a garden in Eden. Now, what if we stopped? Turn back to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. You don't have to, but in your mind. And even before we read that, we say this. God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. God chose us in Christ to be holy and blameless in love before he even proceeded to create the universe. Even before he made the heavens and the earth, God chose us in Christ. God chose you and me. This is not plan B. We often read the story of the fall and we think, oh man, this lousy snake messed up all of God's plan and now God has to go to plan B. But Paul tells us, this isn't plan B, guys. Even before he created the heavens and the earth, he chose you and me in Christ so that we can be holy and blameless. God is still working through plan A, the predetermined plan of God. And part of that plan is that he chose people, now listen, he chose people whom he knew would be unholy and guilty. He chose people whom he knew would be unholy and guilty to be mysteriously, we don't understand how, united with his son to be holy and blameless. He took people whom he knew would be unholy and guilty and predestined us to be mysteriously united with his son so that we will be holy and blameless. Let's read verse 5. Having predestined us to adoption through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. He says that he predestined us to adoption through Christ. Paul can't stop, can he? He says that God predestined us to adoption. Now, the word predestined, I checked the English meaning and I checked the Greek meaning just to make sure that they mean the same thing. And guess what? They mean the same thing. It means that God determined something beforehand. God determined something beforehand. And what did he determine? That believers would be adopted to his family. He determined beforehand that you and I would be sons and daughters of God. Now, for some of us, this doesn't bring joy. The thought of God making a choice before we ever had a choice to do something, it seems kind of nefarious. He's forcing something on us, or evil in some ways. It make, makes us feel like pitiable orphans that need charity, doesn't it? The fact is, we are pitiable orphans that need charity. And our sinful nature doesn't like the thought of God initiating the process of adoption. In some form, we want it to be our choice that places us into God's family. In some way. And Paul tells us, though, that 
part of the, God's predetermined plan through His Son to bring glory to, him, uh, to Himself was made by the counsel of His own will. That's what verse 5 says, right? And that plan was that you and I would be made sons and daughters of God. And that isn't pity. It says here that he willingly did it because it was pleasing to him and that he did it in love. It pleased God to make you and me his sons and daughters in Christ. And it was in love that he did it. This isn't pity. Just take that in for a moment. God willingly chose you and me, unholy, guilty people, and it pleased him, it pleased him in love to adopt us as his children in Christ. I'm going to put this another way. Before anything was created, God the Father and God the Son enjoyed and loved each other eternally. Yes? Before earth was created, before heaven was created, God the Father and God the Son loved each other eternally. In that eternal love within the Godhead, in that love, the Father determined that he would choose you and me to be his sons and daughters in the Son that he loves because it pleases him to invite us into that eternal love. His very act of creation, in the beginning, God created heaven and earth, was an execution of this plan. And how does that plan come to be? He does it by giving it to us in his beloved son. It says, in love, he adopts us for pleasure in his son. So do you see a trend here? God's plan, executed in his son, by his will, for his glory, and for his pleasure. But not everything in this plan was pleasing in the way we think of pleasure. Let's turn to verse 7. In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. The execution of this plan was only possible by the execution of the Son. Does that make sense? The execution of the plan is only possible by the execution of the Son. The blood of Christ had to be shed so that God could purchase His people for Himself. Adopting us as sons and daughters brought Him pleasure, but it had to be done by the means of the suffering and death of His Son. Paul uses these words, redemption, forgiveness, and grace. God's predetermined plan did not take a deliberate act of did not just take a deliberate act of love, but it also took a deliberate act of grace. God's pleasure in showing grace was only fulfilled by the Son of God shedding his blood. And by the way, grace is not an add-on. It's not, you know, the peas that come next to the steak. It's not the mashed potatoes on the side. For us as believers, this entire package, choosing, predetermining, adopting, redeeming, forgiving, this entire package is God's grace to us. It's not just His grace. It's not just His grace. If you look at verse 7, He uses the word riches. 
the riches of his grace. Now, if a human shows us grace, that's, that's a big deal, right? If a human shows us rich grace, that's a really big deal. If God shows us grace, that's, that's, a, that's crazy, that's amazing. But Paul has no other words other than saying, God has shown us the riches of his grace. If God has to give us the riches of his grace, there's no other words that we can describe it. All of these things that we've been reading so far about what he's doing is the fullness of God's grace towards you and me. Now we're probably thinking, so what does all of this have to do with the fire in Havelock, rising rent in Peterborough, Biden and Trump having town halls, and an impending threat of World War III based on a Russian-U.S. nuclear deal? Right? I read a bunch of um, headlines in the beginning. And how does all of this have anything to do with each other? God has a plan and he's working. But how are all of these connected? I want us to turn to verse 8 and 9. He caused us, he caused to abound in all wisdom and insight. That's his grace. Making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure that he purposed in him. So, Paul tells us there's one more thing that pleases the Father. Remember, the first thing that pleased the Father was he was pleased to adopt us. But now, Paul says, in God's wisdom, having shown us grace, it pleases him to make known a plan. And now Paul gets to the heart of God's grand plan. All the verses that we've been looking at, the choosing and the predetermining, and the adopting, and the forgiving, and the redemption is all to bring us to this one point, so that he can reveal his plan to us, the mystery of his will. What's interesting about the mystery is that this mystery that we're going to talk about shattered the expectation of most Jewish leaders. They anticipated that God would reveal a powerful Jewish king, And this Jewish king was then going to overthrow the Romans, establish the Jewish state, and he was going to rule after having cleansed those filthy Romans from our holy land, right? Now, when they look at the cross and they see that man hanging there, that is the furthest point from their expectation. The irony is that it was the furthest point in more ways than one. Let's look at verse 10. For the administration of the fullness of time to bring together all things in Christ, the things in heaven and the things on earth in him. God isn't just working in Jerusalem or Galilee, according to this. He isn't just working in the Middle East or Rome. Paul tells us that he's working with things in heaven and on earth. That's not a nice way of saying everything. He's literally saying he is working amongst spiritual beings, angels, demons. He's working amongst physical things. Everything in the spiritual and earthly realm is being arranged and ordered. And God just isn't working in Christ to order Israel under Christ. But God is taking every angel and demon 
every planet and every pumpkin, every asteroid and every amoeba, and every human being, and ordering them under Christ. Now, this doesn't mean that all people are going to be saved. That's not what I'm saying. It means that under the headship of Christ, all evil will have its rightful place, and all that belongs to Christ will have its rightful place. Does that make sense? Under the headship of Christ, everything will then have its rightful place. Now, it's not something that's happened already. Because it says in verse 10 that there is a fullness of time, something that's yet to happen. So in this current present time, in this moment, God is doing something. But Paul says that in the fullness of time, a future time, God is working towards that when all things will be ordered under Christ. Everything outside of Christ will be chaos. Everything outside will be destruction. Everything outside will be death. But there is coming a time when things will be put in their right place under Christ. Demons, they aren't going to have any influence. Violent men and women, they're going to be sent away from God's presence to eternal destruction. Disease, it's not going to exist. Pollution and destruction of the ecosystem, the earth is going to stop its groaning. While politicians debate universal health care or affordable health care, God's plan is to eradicate death and disease. While we talk about gun control and curbing violence, God's plan is to destroy evil and the evil one and bring peace under Christ's rule. While we wonder whether the ecosystem will survive another generation, God's plan in Christ is to restore creation as it groans under the effects of sin. The Jewish people and the Jewish leaders were looking for a national savior. The Greeks were looking for a person of wisdom. We're looking for the right political party. We're looking for the right corporations. We're looking for the right candidate who's going to save us, right? And God's plan shatters all our expectations because his agenda is not just local. It's universal, and he's ordering all of the spiritual and physical realm under Christ. So we've looked at what God's plan is. He's done choosing. He's predetermined. He's adopted. He's forgiven. He's redeemed in order to bring all things under the rule of Christ. But what's our place in all of this? So we're going to go to our next point, the believer's place. What does this mean for you and me? Let's look at God's grand plan. I want us to pay attention to a few words in this text, okay? Blessed us, chose us, we should be holy, predestined us, bestowed on us, we were chosen, used guys also, when used guys believed, used guys were sealed, our inheritance, us, we, our, you, you all, used guys right? The entire text is scattered with which two words? You and us. God is co-opting us, his church, into his grand plan. Not only is he working through Christ to set everything in order under the headship of Christ, but he's involved, you and me, in his program. We look to political parties, 
We look to city councils. We look to Supreme Court nominees. We look to geniuses. We look to Nobel Prize winners. Then we all come into this place right here to exalt Christ. And when we leave, we look elsewhere for the ones that will save us, don't we? But God hasn't called them to partner with him in his grand plan. God has called us to partner with him in his grand plan. Let's circle back from verses 1 to 8. We see that he predetermined us deliberately in time past. Believer, God chose you so that you can be found in Christ. This is not a coin toss. This is not a lucky draw. It's not an act of self-preservation and intellectual ability that has brought you to this place right now, spiritually and physically. He chose you before heaven and earth was created to be holy and blameless before him. Paul is using language from the Old Testament again. These are the kinds of people who can ascend to the hill of the Lord, the one who is blameless and upright. God chose and qualified you to have access to his presence. Ephesians 1.11, if you could turn to that. In whom also we were chosen, having been predestined according to the purpose of the one who works all things according to the counsel of his will. God chose you and predetermined that you would be partners with him in his grand plan. Paul says the Father works all things according to the counsel of his will. The Father is bringing all things under Christ. The Father works all things through Christ. The Father has determined to unite you and me with Christ. And the Father has joyfully made known his plan to you that he purposed in Christ. In verse 11, he uses the phrase, in whom we were chosen. In some of our Bibles, it's rendered, in him we have obtained an inheritance, right? And in other Bibles, it's in whom we were chosen. Now, Paul uses the passive voice for this verb. So rather than us obtaining an inheritance, it's actually that we, or it could be rendered, we have been obtained as an inheritance, we have been obtained as an inheritance. This is good news, right? Because to be the inheritance of God means that we are God's precious possession. In the Old Testament, the people of the nations, the foreign nations, they belonged to false gods. They obeyed those gods, they listened to those false gods, and then they ended at the fate of those false gods, right? But the people of Israel were the inheritance of God. Paul tells us that the unveiling of this mystery is that believers today have also come in to enjoy this privilege of becoming the inheritance of God. Ephesians 1.13. If you could turn to that now. In whom also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also when you believed, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So Paul qualifies our response to God's predetermined plan with a few words. Hoped, heard, believed. Hoped, heard, believed. He says that all of God's people, both Jews 
who hoped in Christ and the Gentiles who heard the gospel and believed have been given an inheritance. Our place in this plan isn't to order things under Christ. That's not our place in this plan. That's the Father's place. The Father orders all things under Christ. Our place is to be the ones that hope, hear, and believe. And the God who is working all things gives us an inheritance. Much more, he guarantees this inheritance. The Father who chose us in Christ gives us an inheritance and seals us with the Holy Spirit. The Father has given us Christ and he's given us the Holy Spirit. God says that he is a down payment of our inheritance. Isn't it marvelous that our position as partners in this grand plan is that we are God's inheritance? He's guaranteed us access because he's made us holy and blameless and he's given us an inheritance. We were chosen by purposeful predetermination to be God's children and to be found in Christ. And all this is done according to God's will in Christ Jesus for God's pleasure and glory. Now here comes the next question. What's our response? What do I do in response to all of this? So God's got a plan. He's co-opted us into this plan. He's made us holy. He's given us an inheritance. We have become his inheritance. What do I do in response? Do you, do you remember the word that started the long train? The first word? It's the word blessed, exactly. The word blessed. And now Paul isn't asking us to bless the Father. He's saying that the Father is blessed. But he tells us what the end purpose of the plan is. If you could turn to verse 6, it says, To the praise of the glory of his grace. Now, if you stick your fingers at verse 12, it says, to the praise of his glory. If we go to verse 14, it says, to the praise of his glory. Brothers and sisters, God's marvelous plan is already being worked in Christ, and he has involved us in it. And the end purpose is that praise would be made to his glory. So what should our response be? To praise him. Exactly. What else are his sons and daughters adopted in love going to do but praise him? Can you imagine that God can take this guy who absentmindedly forgets his wife and kids and drives off somewhere else and chooses him to praise him? Can you believe that God would choose sinful humans before the dawn of creation to be his, in, to be his inheritance and to give him pleasure? Why? To praise him. Can you imagine that God would allow the son that he loved through eternity to be a sacrifice in order that we might receive forgiveness and be blameless and holy? Why? To praise him. The thing that we're afraid of when we turn on the TV, what are we afraid of? We're either afraid of persecution or we're afraid of death. That's why the news frightens us, doesn't it? The fact is, that we've grown to love a life that might not exist tomorrow. The fact is, this life won't exist tomorrow. Remember Nebuchadnezzar? He was praised. People bowed down to that golden statue. Guess what? He's dead. And his empire? It's no more. Caesar, the ruler of the known world, he was praised, and guess what? He's dead, and his empire is no more. There are other names. Lenin, 
Marx, Stalin, Hitler, all praised. They're no more. There's only one name that has been praised from the beginning. And his kingdom continues. This is the one who is making Christ head over all things in heaven and earth. The Father is to be praised. So this is what I'm going to do in the next few weeks. Instead of turning on the TV to listen to the news, I'm going to turn to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1 to 14. And you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to praise him. When I do happen to watch or read the news, because guess what's happening in the next few weeks? The elections, right? In the U.S.? I'm going to read Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1 to 14. And what am I going to do? I'm going to praise him. When I talk to my wife, and when I talk to my kids, and when I text my friends, what am I going to do? I'm going to praise him. There are no guarantees except one thing. The Father has determined before the foundation of the world that all things will be subject to Christ to the praise of his glory. God has done something marvelous, and that is in the end of it. His plan is to put everything under the headship of Christ, and Christ will give everything their rightful due. And he has involved us in a wonderful way in this marvelous plan. Our response, church, let us praise the name of God.